0: Welcome to episode 36 of the Health KPI Podcast. I have the pleasure today of interviewing and and introducing you to Victoria Hama, who I met during my appearance on her YouTube TV show, The Subconscious Proof. Victoria is a highly skilled chronic pain and wellness coach who is equipped with a diverse educational background in hypnotherapy, massage therapy, personal training, and her unique skills allow her to address a wide range of issues with where she particularly focuses on substance addictions, trauma, and serving diverse populations, including indigenous communities in Ontario and in Canada. In addition to running her own successful practice, Victoria has dedicated her time to educating clients and individuals at a private addiction treatment center. She also extends her expertise to various indige- indigenous reserves in Canada, contributing to the well-being of the communities. Furthermore, Victoria, has um, she collaborates with numerous organizations, including businesses, private schools, throughout contract work. Her exceptional work has garnered a lot of recognition, and she has been featured in numerous podcasts and various news articles. Through these platforms, she shares her valuable insight and experience in assisting clients with mindset transformation, chronic pain management, and weight loss. I'm beyond excited to have you here today, Victoria. Your your expertise, the way that you approach things, I love your view on everything. And I mean, anytime that I've talked with you too, you're always like researching and checking into books and all of that as well. So I am so excited to dive into this interview with you today. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited because you do amazing work as
1: well. And I feel like when I met you, I was like, yes, we have more people in the world talking about this stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so this um, podcast as well, you know, I've been talking because originally it was planned when I was doing burnout and we've switched it to more of tracking uh, the stress symptoms because that's where more people sit and resonate. And through talking about that with you, you also resonated that through with what you do so if you don't mind giving us a little bit insight into that from your point of view that would be great
1: Yeah, so I, because I work with such an interesting population, I mean, I have ultra wealthy, high professionals who own, you know, maybe not even just one company, but multiple companies or sit on boards of multiple companies. And then I have other people that I work with who were literally homeless last week. Um, So there's, and everybody in between. So it's such a wide variety. And what's really amazing is that we love to think that we're really unique and we are in some ways. But the way that we deal with things, whether it's emotion, stress, trauma is really similar. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to clients about stress, they, A, it is very minimized. They really don't want to address it or acknowledge it in the same way, or they use it as like a badge of honor. Like I had so much work this week. I couldn't possibly have added anything else. And they almost want me to go, good job. And I'm like, that's, that doesn't sound healthy. Like what are you doing to help manage that? And then they don't have an answer. And I've noticed that what's really fascinating is when I got into the addictions work, how many high level, high powered CEOs and people who ran their own businesses really use substances as a way to mask other things happening in their life. Like their symptoms of stress, anxiety, burnout, whatever you want to call it they use substances just to get them through. Mm-hmm. So I'm
0: glad that we are able to have this bigger conversation around this. Amazing, yeah. And as you're saying that, this picture is actually going through my mind because I used to work downtown Toronto with, um, and always going out to the clubs when I was in my 20s, we're going back 30 years ago, but I used to it would be out there and I would be seeing clients that were working in the gym with us And, you know, mixing the Red Bulls in with the alcohol, and then you knew that they were doing some sort of an upper and, and that to keep them going continually. And then I, I knew many of them personally that they would also be taking something to be able to get them to sleep for the three, four hours until they would be taking something in the morning to get them going again in order to be, to be pushing themselves. So yeah, it, it's, it's, and it was a badge of honor to them. They would almost brag about what they were putting into their bodies to give them all of this extra, what they thought was focus and energy. Um, but fast forwarding, you know, years, and I would hear stories about ser- many of these individuals where um, things didn't go in the direction that they wanted them to go.
1: And it often, they don't see it early enough. Hmm. And um, I'll use like the real estate industry, because that's a really big one that has a lot of substance abuse that uh, there's many, but one definitely is real estate or hospitality. And it's so normalized that it's hard to recognize the early signs of when you're using substances to kind of deal with other stuff because it's normal to go to a showing or have an open house and have some alcohol there or take a client out or this or that and I mean in the hospitality industry it's even worse because you're literally sometimes working at a bar where you know ideally you're not drinking at work but you might be and if you're not like you're exhausted like let's take, let's just take a bump of cocaine and like, let's just keep it going because I need to work until 4am and I don't have the energy. And it's so normalized that the conversation doesn't start very early about like, I think I might have a problem. And nobody else wants to even say that to you because they're doing the same stuff and the guilt of, well, I'm doing the same thing. So I'm not going to say anything because
0: then that might be admitting that I have a problem. Yeah. And When we're diving into that as well, when you get into some of these businesses and industries, and I do recall like in my early twenties, seeing how much they worked, you know, how much they were pushing themselves. And it did seem the norm that when we get this norm, we don't then see the habits creeping up or how it is always affecting our health or our life, which is our focus, our energy, our drive, everything that that does affect it. So with, with me, like that's where I love using health trackers because we can see if somebody is coming and saying that they're pushing all these hours and go, okay, let me look at your sleep. And we can flat out see the the deep sleep they're getting or not getting the REM sleep. So the deep that helps to heal the um, all of the body systems and the REM sleep that's helping the focus, the brain, the moods, their ability to actually close deals Mm -hmm. and be present. And they can start seeing the difference of when that increases, how the feelings can increase as well. So diving into that, when we're looking at the nervous system as well, that's where we see their HRV is um, just tanks. And that's where we see moods going all over the place. So when you're thinking of clients and you're hearing their stories, like we did just talk about the worst, Let's talk about the start when you're hearing stories of the start of them. So people can start realizing where that sleep would get off, where that nervous system dysregulation would start affecting them. Can you dive into that of when they start realizing where it actually started?
1: You know what? I would love to say that they can see it, but it's very challenging unless you have somebody in your life who's like, "Mm, I think you're not getting enough sleep. So, the self-awareness and when I talk to clients I always say awareness is the first step because you can't change something if you're not aware of it. Using like I I have a Fitbit and I love my Fitbit because it does help me keep on track a little bit and be a little bit more cognitive about the choices I'm making throughout the day as well as at night. Sleep is so fundamental for almost everything. Like there is so fascinating what sleep and even an hour less of sleep does, because what's interesting with sleep is that, you know, we, we know the symptoms of not having enough sleep. We already know that we wake up and we're like, Oh, I'm kind of groggy. It's hard to get myself up and going. I have definitely have that midday crash, And then I'm so tired in the evening, like I want to have a nap, but then for a lot of people, if you have a nap, then your sleep that next night is disrupted and you're constantly in the sleep deficit. And when you're in a sleep deficit, what's interesting about sleep is it's not something you can actually get back, right? Once that eight hours at night is gone, you can't create more hours. It's gone. So you're in that sleep deficit that's affecting your health for that day. And then if you continue the cycle for more days following. So something I noticed with a lot of people, especially with my food addiction clients, is their food habits when they're not sleeping well enough. So when they're not sleeping well enough, they need more energy because their body is trying to do more with less. So then they turn to foods that are not as healthy for them or they turn to stimulants. Um, A lot of people, like I had a client who was a high-powered lawyer and ran a firm and and it was in a sense it was a bit comical because he was talking to me at an addiction treatment center and bragging to me about his job and how much he worked and I was like and how's that going for you like you know and he's like well you know and he immediately wanted to come up with the excuses as to why it was okay but when you actually are like, okay, hey, well, how much are you sleeping? Well, you know, like I try and get between four and six hours. Okay. Well then how do you survive on four to six hours? Well, then I just did cocaine. Yeah. Okay. We're seeing a pattern here, you know? So I think opening the lines of communication around that is the first start.
0: Absolutely. And this is the thing too, as far as where sleep goes is we say, well, not we say, it is said that like seven and a half to eight hours of sleep is is the average of what people need on a daily basis. The thing though, is that that's what people people know that, but they also think, okay, that's like best case scenario, but I can be good on six hours. If we look at the definition of sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation is six hours or less of sleep. And if you look at chronic sleep deprivation, that's three months of six hours or less of sleep on a night. And with me working with responders, four to six hours was just average for them. And they thought culturally, because everybody else is only doing four, getting four to six hours, even on days off, because their body can't sleep, they think that's the norm. But as you say, that's where we they do, studies do show that when you get six hours or less of sleep for three months in a row, then that leads to, um, Uh, mind and focus irregularities, it leads into ethical decisions, which leads into, we get um, gambling, sex addictions, addictions. we get into the um, substance abuses, and it also also can lead to suicides. That when I first started working with responders, um, well, throughout my time with them, they didn't tell me when they came into my program that they were having suicidal thoughts. Thankfully, because I would have been like, okay, we need to get you right away into somebody. But through working on their sleep, through regulating their nervous system, through getting all of those stats, those KPIs up, they they would come to me after about six months and go, my suicidal thoughts are gone. I'm like, whoa, what do you mean? And they're like, but they were getting their eight hours again and they started paying back their sleep debt. And you can see that in the stats too, that once you start getting, the proper amount of sleep, deep sleep takes over because your body starts healing first and you're not getting hardly any REM. Deep creeps into the entire sleep. And as you're paying back more and more sleep debt, deep starts going back to the first two thirds of your sleep, which it's supposed to be. And REM starts coming in at the end of your sleep and eventually getting to the last two thirds of your sleep. But it takes them sometimes years to get that sleep debt paid off.
1: Well, and you know, what's interesting is you can often figure this out. Also, if you ask people if they dream or not, Mm, that's a very good indicator of how their nervous system is doing and what kind of sleep and the quality of sleep they're getting. Cause if they never dream, then they probably aren't getting very good sleep.
0: Yes. Um, the dreaming as well, although I did have many situations with responders when they were taking like melatonin or something where the majority of people don't need melatonin and it's, marketed in a way that is not the way that people need it. And if you do not need melatonin and you're taking it, even if sleep deprived, it can give you very, um, some horrific dreams It can actually bring up some of their traumas and stuff. So it as, as exactly what you're saying, if they're not taking any supplements for sleep and they're not dreaming, then yes, absolutely. That is a key sign of the sleep deprivation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about nervous system? Oh, sorry. You had something on sleep. I was going to say the other big key I love to remind people of when
1: it comes to sleep hygiene is sedation is not sleep. Yes. Yes. And that's an important key because again, when people are intelligent enough to know they're supposed to get the eight hours, they will use other substances, whether prescribed or unprescribed like melatonin or a sleeping pill or similar as a way to help fall asleep. Or a lot of people like to say, well, I just have a drink or two before bed. We that is
0: sedation.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: used to hear a shot of alcohol with a shot of NyQuil. Yeah. Very common. Mm-hmm. So explain to me the difference between the sedative and a sleep aid. Well, so
1: a set, well, so here's the interesting thing is I would argue most sleep aids are sedatives. Mm-hmm. If they're not natural. Natural is meaning that they come from plants and herbs and are just trying to stimulate your nervous system to kind of calm down, bring everything down, allow your body to actually rest because your body will not rest if it doesn't feel comfortable or safe, which is why a lot of first responders won't sleep well, because they're so used to being, having a heightened nervous system that their nervous system's always on alert. And, you know, through history, we needed to be alert to know if a tiger was coming into the cave. So if we felt like we were in a place where we couldn't control our safety while we're sleeping, we wouldn't go into deep sleep. And if you're not in deep sleep, that's also why I say dreaming can be a really good indicator of whether or not their nervous system is really heightened. So they stay in this really light stage sleep so they can be awoken very easily. So when you use natural supplements, sometimes that helps the nervous system piece to bring everything down. When you use a sedative, it is just making you unconscious. Being unconscious is not the equivalent to sleep because your brain is not doing the same things. Sleep is an incredibly important tool, obviously for tissue repair and uh, bone repair and all these other processes that happen at night, but it's also really, really super key for the brain and brain health. And that's why you see such a huge correlation between people who have different mental health disorders and sleep issues. So the brain has to, you know, categorize information and log it and create, you know, short-term memory space and all these other things. And if you are unconscious, the neural activity is not working the same way. You're not having the sleep spindles the same way. You're not having that connectivity in the brain because the brain is actually quite active at night. It's just active in a totally different way. And if you're sedating yourself, you're sedating your ability to have an active brain. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so just one more thing on that too, is your um, nervous system is actually in charge of 50 hormone responses, sleeping, waking, metabolism, cholesterol, blood pressure, healing, repairing um, moods, cognitive thinking. There's, then you get like your typical, what you think of the hormones of, of your reproductive sex, libido and stuff, but there's 50 different responses there. And you need natural melatonin, not synthetic. You need natural melatonin to kick in and once natural melatonin kicks in it almost like is a tripwire to start this cascade of these other hormones healing and repairing themselves that if you're sedating yourself you're not naturally releasing melatonin and so as you said exactly the brain is not doing what it needs to do to be healing repairing and doing all of those things exactly that so it's it's quite fascinating yes that sedative just knocks you out and makes it look like you're sleeping. The sleep aids, those those tinctures help to lower your nervous system so your natural melatonin can kick in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So that did tie in some of the nervous system and and in the sleep. So where do we go with more nervous system when it's coming to addictions?
1: Well, so often A huge correlation with addictions is resiliency, which Mm. is the nervous system. So many people who are in active addiction, who get to the point where they do need interventions and treatment beyond the scope of what they can do at home, their nervous system is such a mess. Um, Whether they have trauma or not, also, it's not just trauma related. And this ties into pain as well. So when I see them, it's interesting, you get to see their journey. So they're there often anywhere from 30 days to 90 days. And then the rare persons there are 120 days, but they really don't take anybody for less than 30 days for many reasons. Even if they come already in a detox program, so they've already technically detoxed, they still need 30 days because your nervous system needs to reset. So leading up to addictions... They have a lot of things that are unstable in their life often, whether that was from childhood or it's a repeating pattern now at adulthood. Their nervous system never knows how to relax, it's always hyper stimulated. And then you have kind of two people your nervous system crashes, and then you need an upper or you need a downer to help you relax. So it's that person who they were going, going, going all day, and their nervous system is constantly like, I don't yeah, all day to try and be productive. And then five o'clock hits and they're like, I need a drink because I need my brain to shut off. You know, how many people literally use substances to say like, I need it to relax. They have no other tools to relax. They haven't created any other program to allow their nervous system and their body and their brain to relax. And so they use a substance.
0: Yeah. So coming home from work, having a drink, when you chat with your spouse, might be it like in a when we're looking at that in, in the at a first we're like oh that's great they have a ritual for them to have that time together the quality time between spouses which many people don't have but when we stop and look at it that alcoholic drink is there and do they need like feel that they need it in order to be able to Switch that nervous system from that work into this home conversation, and then quite often too, after they do have that drink when they've come home from work, they're back in the office doing more work as well, and back in that nervous system Mm -hmm. later on. It's similar as the way people use cigarettes, right?
1: You Mm -hmm. don't.
0: Most people don't use a cigarette
1: when they feel great. They use the Mm -hmm. cigarette, you know, um, post-stimulating situations post-stressful mm-hmm. situations and I say stimulating because then there's always the cigarette after sex which I would argue is still the nervous system trying to come down it's just not in a way they would think about it right and it's the same way with um, other substances they just don't have other tools and their nervous system again we can't live in that state our body will not function it will just stop this is why we have such you know prevalent issues with heart, pr- heart blood pressure and heart attacks and strokes and Um, diabetes is also really connected. Like there's so many other things that are connected
0: to that intense nervous system all the time. Yeah. And we get where like with the nervous system, when you're tracking that and we're looking at your HRV, it is amazing when um, I get clients to track their alcohol use. And it is interesting because it does hit different people differently. Um, some people, one drink can hit them like really super hard, and some people it's not as much. Um, but it is fascinating, and I'm not even talking addictions. I'm talking about a drink. When you are having a drink in the evening, how that can drop your HRV, and your HRB RV is your body's ability to handle stressors. And for some people, like uh, having a couple of glasses of wine in the night can make their HRV stay low for days, which means when you're trying to focus, when you're trying to close a deal, when you're, you know, working on a very important project at work, your ability to handle any stressors, which means any conflict with your team, managing anybody, any issues that arrive in a project, or even being able to um, think and be calm when you're negotiating a contract from one drink. Well, and this is why people get into using substances because if you're unable to
1: do that um, and you don't have tools beyond your substance to do that, then when you do need to close a deal, you're like, well, I need to have a drink because yeah. in your mind, the association is the drink actually helps me. Whereas statistically, when you look at the science, it's not doing anything for you. It's
0: actually exasperating the situation. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't even know. Where is that line between an addiction and not? I don't know.
1: So that's a very tough question because it looks different for everybody. I simplify it by saying, if you use the words I need about anything, that's not a true need, like food, water, whatever. I would say that you, you probably have an unhealthy relationship with it. Mm -hmm. oh you know and it could be shopping it could be sex like there's so many and even with food it's like I need this candy bar no you don't if you say you need it and you believe it then you have an unhealthy relationship with that thing you say I need a drink after work no you you don't it's not necessary for survival it may feel necessary for survival because that's the habit and that's the behavior you've created and your body and understands, that doesn't mean that it's needed. So that's how I super simplify it. Obviously it's more complex when it comes into the, um, actually categorizing of it and really looking into the history, you know, it's interesting how many people like to equate their addiction to addiction in the family where even though yes, genetically there is some changes, interestingly enough, epigenetics would say that it has nothing to do with genetics. It has everything to do with environment. So it's often much more about how you deal with situations, what situations you're given, what tools you have to deal with those situations, how you're raised, what behavior was modeled to you. All of those things are going to make you at a higher or lower risk of addictions.
0: Yeah. Um, so you had brought up as well, before we started recording, um, limitations. Mm-hmm. Can you dive into that a little bit? Because that was something where I was like, "Hmm, I'm not sure I resonate with this, but as you started describing it, I'm like, oh, I so resonate with this.
1: Yes. So I will use my own personal story for this. And it's not addiction related, but it's um, medicating limitations. So a few years ago now, I went on a low dose of an antidepressant. And um, obviously, you know, like I felt better overall. I also was making other health changes. So it's arguable about how much of it was the antidepressant and how much was my other life changes. But I was listening to a really great audiobook called Drug Dealer MD by uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, who is an addiction specialist. And she made a comment in the book that really resonated with me. And I reflected on it in so many other ways, including my own life. And she asked the question of when we're medicating people for mental health conditions or addictions or whatever it might be, why are we doing it? Are we doing it because they need it? Or is it because they have a limitation in their life that they want to get rid of and they're using the medication to do that? So in my own life, when I reflected, I recognized that what this antidepressant gave me was the ability to work longer hours and do more with less side effects. It actually gave me the ability to do more. And that's why I loved it because mentally my brain was like, we're still good. We can still keep going. Whereas before I would have been tired and I would have needed a break and I would have felt mentally drained. And when I reflected on that idea, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm literally using this medication to continue my workaholism and really perpetuate my own burnout if I'm not careful Yeah. and when you look at this in the life of other people and I like to use ADHD because there's a lot of controversial and people hate the conversations around ADHD because you're either of one or two camps it feels like at this day and age you're either the camp of like ADHD is in so many people and people aren't treating it properly, blah, 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 blah. Or there's the camp of like, yeah, okay, everybody has ADHD, whatever. It's not a big deal. And it's interesting to me because A, ADHD and a trauma response look the exact same, especially at least in children. And I would argue even in adults. Um, But if you have a child in school who has the inability to concentrate or is constantly moving or... um, can't retain information. That's all also a trauma response. If the child has had trauma in their history, their nervous system is primed to react, trying to look, hear, see, and feel everything all the time to ensure their environment is safe. What does that look like? A child constantly fidgeting, constantly looking around, constantly doing this and that. They also are in our fight and flight response, which means all of the blood is in their muscles, not necessarily in their brain. And so they physically feel the need to move. They fidget, they move around, they can't sit still. So it's, it's interesting to me how we're quick to say it's ADHD. And I actually asked, I had a client one time who was um, a doctor who worked in a hospital with kids more in mental health. And I asked, how do you even diagnose that at five years old as ADHD? And he said, you know, we really try not to, but they get pushback from the parents. And I would argue, okay, well, are you medicating the child because you feel it's best for their health or are you medicating the child because you want to take away the limitations of not being able to sit still. Mm -hmm. And maybe they just have a limitation right now in their life that they can't focus for more than 15 minutes. And instead of just medicating away that limitation, you should be working to treat the cause of that limitation and slowly extend their focus from 15 minutes to 20 minutes to 25, 30, whatever you need it to be.
0: Yeah. And checking into traumas as well as with ADHD, Um, A lot of research I do a lot on the neurodiverse side because of my child. And there's uh, one of the biggest uh, gifted gurus, uh, um, Linda Silverman, she talks about how um, a lot of the kids that present with ADHD with her actually have an auditory processing disorder where they're actually hearing more. They might hear different things left and right ear, so they can't sit still. They're constantly hearing so much and overstimulated in their auditory processing That quite often, once these kids get these proper filters to actually filter out noises or allow them to hear the same in the left and the right ear, um, which requires a very special audiologist to know how to do this. Most do underhearing. You need a special audiologist that understands overhearing, um, that the ADHD symptoms often go away as well. So there's often, as you're saying, I do 100% believe that there is a reason for certain medications at times when there's somebody that's suicidal absolutely take a antidepressant or anti-anxiety if it's the anxiety and panic attacks that's getting them to that that suicidal state so that we can then do the deep work to fix the problem that caused it so we see as well with everything um all of these affect. so stress is affecting um your brain perceives the stress the nervous system kicks in and when you're In that fight or flight state, you don't need to have a meal, your gut slows down, and 90% of your serotonin, which is that synthetic um, hormone that's in anti-anxiety and antidepressants, 90% of that's released in your gut, that happy, I feel good, I want to be social, I'm calm hormone. And, And we get like... And and all of these other 50 hormones of your stress, a lot of those are released through the gut as well. So there's so many different pieces of this puzzle that are in place. And if we're just giving a drug to mask all those symptoms, we can't actually fix the root of the problem.
1: Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm not against medications. My issue with the way a lot of people are treated is there's no treatment plan around the medication it's here, have the medication and you'll just be on it indefinitely because we're not going to go any further with that, which is bizarre to me because even as a massage therapist through my regulatory board, technically every single person we treat, even if somebody just came and said, Hey, I just want a relaxation massage. Technically we need to create a treatment plan for them. Mm. So we're required even just for a relaxation massage to create a treatment plan. And yet A doctor is not creating a treatment plan around medication, which is altering chemicals in your body. And so when I see clients and I have a lot of clients I see who are really against medication and I explain to them, look, it is a tool and it is very helpful. So especially in addictions, there's a lot of um, studies that have proven using medication to help you with withdrawal symptoms, helping you with cravings, helping you with other things, because if you have 30 days to deal with, let's say a lifetime worth of stuff, Mm -hmm. you need to be able to be focused on all of those other stuff and creating other tools, not on going through physical withdrawals, not on going through these physical issues. And then as you create those tools to help your nervous system, to help your mind, to help you deal with that trauma, then you can wean off of those medications because now you're in a state physically and mentally where you're able to actually handle some of those physical symptoms that may come with getting off those medications.
0: Absolutely. And the, the, my, my struggle with a lot of prescriptions as well is just somebody says their symptoms, a prescription's given. It's not, there's no diving into, hey, do you have gut issues, right? Like it it blows me away, even just um, proton pump inhibitors, which are an antacid. The amount of clients that I have that are given an antacid and not one, not one of them ever had testing first to find out if their acids were even high. The thing is is when you're stressed your stomach's slowing down your acids actually slow down high bacteria bad bacteria and high stomach acids are similar symptoms so a doctor is taking somebody saying symptoms that are of one thing when it can still actually be another without figuring out which is it first which do we help them with so giving a prescription just because somebody has said some some symptoms to you without diving into the root cause first is also where i struggle with prescriptions as well absolutely um so people listening to this we've talked about the addictions we've talked about where if it's something that they feel they need to have then they then that could be an addiction sign so what do they do like where do we go from here mhm so this is where reflection is really important
1: and unfortunately for a lot of people they don't spend much time sitting and reflecting journaling doing any activities like that so they're very unaware of a lot of their behavior and they're very unaware of the connections in their behavior so if you don't want to do the work yourself, I will say, go to a therapist, go to a coach, go to somebody who will help identify those with you. When they hear your story, they'll start to ask questions that will make you become aware. But really, I would say stopping every day and doing a reflection. Or if, you, if you've noticed a bit of a pattern and you're like, oh, huh, that's kind of interesting. I tell people like, get curious because it's not about judgment of your behavior. It's about just recognizing it. So then you can address it. So even, you know, I see it a lot with food addiction is a huge one because it's, it's one of the more challenging addictions because you can't be abstinent. You have to eat food. Whereas you really don't ever need to have alcohol. You can avoid that your entire life. So with food addiction, a lot of it is behavioral patterns and habits and once they recognize that they may have an unhealthy relationship with food then that's when they can start to recognize some of the other habits and patterns but even then they may say oh well i always eat a really bad snack at 5 p.m. just after dinner and if if you just accept that as like oh well, i just need to fix that i just need to stop eating that you're you're stopping yourself from recognizing what's driving the behavior so even when people come into me for chronic pain and they say oh my gosh I don't know what's going on like right now my hips bother me my low back's bother me and I listen to all of it and hear all the symptoms and then I ask how stress been lately and it's interesting because it's not something they would bring up they wouldn't say oh yeah my mom's dying by the way yeah they would just say focus on the physical symptoms but when you ask another question of like okay well let's let's take a step back let's look at the bigger picture What else is going on that may be connected that I'm not recognizing? So when you take a step back and you say, okay, well, I always eat late at night at 5 p.m. And it's always a bad snack because, well, it's the only time I have to have 15 minutes to myself. And so I think I deserve a treat. I worked hard, so I'm going to treat myself. Or, oh, this pain is really bad. Oh, and I my mom's also dying and I've been really stressed because I'm the primary caregiver and I don't feel like I can ever rest because I'm always worried something's going to happen to her. You know, like once you hear that bigger picture, you're like, okay, well now let's actually work on the stuff. So being aware without judgment is the biggest thing you can do for yourself. Taking a look, and I sometimes say it's like a third party. Imagine if you're watching the scene unfold in front of you. And you didn't know the people and you were just kind of observing it, what notes would you make about that observation, that interaction? Yeah. And that allows you to take a lot of the judgment out of it as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. because the thing is is we are our own worst critic, we judge ourselves the most. things that we would punish ourselves for or put ourselves down for we would never put anybody else down for. And, so, that is huge to stop and take that look outside. And to add to all of the amazing things you just said, when it comes to food as well, like somebody might need that sugar, and it might be to where their willpower cannot handle it. They need, 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 need that sugar. And that's where you're like, okay, I can't stop. I can't stop no matter what I'm doing. That's where we can start diving into too. What is there different hormonal imbalances going on with you? Are there, um, Like if we dive into every time your stress system kicks out, your glucose also kicks out, which starts throwing off blood sugars, waking you up mid-sleep, and then you get hangry all the time, that if you start taking note of some of these, quite often, a lot of them actually have an underlying cause. But there's the thing is if you go to somebody to be balancing out your blood sugars, you might be hitting plateaus with them, even though they know what they're doing to, to balance the blood sugars, because the stress is kicking off the nervous system, which is taxing your system. Like there's all of these systems at play in our body. So diving into one aspect as well is usually, no matter how trained that person is in that one aspect, like, No matter how much somebody is in, like, in, in, I actually, I, I was thinking of alcohol, but I don't like, if, if somebody is just working on detoxing you from that vice, but they're not working on what got you there in the first place, the habits of working crazy hours, needing to work more, needing those stimulants or the, the, uh, the traumas or the different things that are going in with them, then then no matter how good that person is at detoxing, you matter how much, many times you detox yourself, you'll keep going back into it, but you'll keep punishing yourself instead of taking that step back and going to somebody going, okay, I keep detoxing myself. I don't want to be doing this. What's going on. Mm -hmm. And I always remind, and like, it's, it's easier for people in addiction to see this, but people who
1: don't understand addiction, they do think it's like, we'll just stop drinking. And it's like, okay, well, if that was the cure, then detox centers would be full of curing people, but that's not happening.
0: So clearly that's not, that's not solving the problem. And we need to take a bigger look at this. Yeah. Like why did it happen in the first place? And it's usually not just one reason. (laughs) It's usually not just because I was working a lot and wanting to work in my career. Like Mm -hmm. what got you to that point as well? Like there's so much, always so many layers to this. And that's where finding somebody like you, when you're in the addictions to really be able to get under that hood and go, okay, so you're addicted, but let's dive into the deeper picture. Let's really figure this all out. And that's where, too, like I love, I love being able to get that data from a tracker, too, because it doesn't lie. <laughs> and I can go into and go, okay, what happened on Wednesday? You know, what was your Wednesday like? And they can start telling me. And then that's when I start learning about things like, So instance two, somebody is working a lot. And then when they're at home, they have the guilt of not doing the things. So then they don't stop and slow down because of the guilt of how much they just worked. And it could be the the day off is the one that's showing more stress than actual the work day of the crazy hours. And you can start diving into it. So I love being able to really be able to figure out, okay, where are the stressors that are perceived by your brain, taxing your nervous system, throwing off your gut, messing up your hormones, getting everything out there so that you do start craving the sugars. You do start craving the uppers, the downers, the sleep to be awake, to have the energy and all of those things. hmm Yeah. So with that being said, with with diving into all of this what is something that we have not talked about yet that you feel we need to touch on harm
1: reduction mhm yes so abstinence is fabulous but statistically it is not as effective at least in a big global picture And it's interesting because this is a topic that yes, is specific to substances, but I argue can be translated over into even just managing your stress because yeah, the absence of stress would be fabulous. It'd be great. You know, like, cool. Just, just don't be stressed, right? Just don't be stressed. No big deal. But that's not realistic for some people, at least, especially depending on where they are in their life. Just like there's going to be some people, if they've been on some of these you know, heavier um, opioids and methadone and fentanyl for a long time, abstinence is incredibly challenging and their nervous system is going to take a really hard hit trying to be abstinent. And then they just fall into addiction again. And because they fall back into addiction, one of the most heightened times for overdoses is when they leave treatment. Mm -hmm. They are a really, really high dose of overdosing when they leave detox or treatment. And that's when a lot of people die because they haven't had it in their system and then they can't manage what's happening. And then they just overdose because they just kind of, it's like a binge, right? Whereas when you treat it in a harm reduction capacity, you say, look, I get that you're doing this. You know, it's not good for you. You know, you don't want it, but you don't know how to change it yet. So let's take some smaller steps to get you to where you need to be whether it's um and this is this is a really controversial subject but safe injection sites safe injection sites people are like why are we why are we spending money to have people be able to shoot up and get high in a government facility well for one it's statistically shown to also make it safer for the public because now you don't have dirty needles in playgrounds or other things It also means that diseases and other things aren't being translated around because, again, it's safe, secure needles. If there is an overdose, help is right there and available. And it also means that support systems and information and when people actually say, hey, I'm ready for help, it's all right there and they can get help right away. So that's a form of harm reduction because. Again, you're not stopping them from using their substance, but you are giving them the option to use less. You're giving the, them the option to, you know, treat the body a little bit better. There's other ways of doing harm reduction, and it, what's actually interesting is when it comes to alcohol, it's one of the most effective treatments for alcohol is lowering how much you're drinking. So if you are drinking every single day, even if it's just one glass of wine, I would encourage you to try and drink four days a week or five days a week and see how you do and if you struggle that might be enough of the indicator for you that you have a bigger issue happening so harm reduction is incredibly helpful and when it comes to the nervous system it also means that you're not making this huge change in the nervous system that is going to make things more challenging so we've talked about uppers and downers but what people forget is an upper literally means it's increasing your sensitivity and nervous system there is a rebound of your nervous system trying to balance out when you take away that stimulant. So if, whether, so if you do it that way, then you need a support system of people helping you as your nervous system is balancing out. If you're doing it on your own, then reducing the amount you're using is incredibly helpful to be able to allow your nervous system to start to adjust without the rebounding of it trying to find equilibrium again.
0: Yeah, and what you said as well about like, people do want to strive for that balance that, and, and I've had people ask me like on a tracker, when are my numbers just gonna be the same all the time? I'm like, they're not, you know, because life happens. We have different stages too, right? Like you're single and then you move in with somebody and then you get married and then you have kids and then you've got like these little babies and then toddlers and then teenagers and this, and then they move out like there's all these different stressors. And then there's stressors in your career, there's stressors in life, there's stressors in your health there's always going to be stressors, just even the stressor of like going to a wedding and having all the drinks, eating all the food, doing all the stuff, staying up really, really late. And then maybe having commitments the next day. You can't go through life without having these celebratory events that are going to um, throw your stats off. And so it's kind of like riding a horse where you know, you're holding the reins, but if you always hold those reins tight, that horse is like going to get panicked and nervous. And if you just let those reins be too loose, the horse is just going to go all over the place. So it's the kind of that balance between a little bit tight, little loose, little tight, little loose, like nobody's going to be perfect in anything. And just knowing that having the tools, when your data starts showing you That, oops, you're getting a little stressed here. Oops, things are getting a little off the rails and you have the tools go, okay, I know how to get that back a little bit better. So it's Mm -hmm. always that back and forth. So that's why we have to have tools. And managing expectations,
1: right? So going back to your example of horseback riding, I do actually horseback ride and it's been really hot lately. And so guess what? My expectations of what my horse is going to want to do or whatever is changed when the weather is really hot out.
0: Mm.
1: I know that I have to change my expectations and yes, in a perfect world this is what my ride would look like, but guess what? It's not going to because there's circumstances that are outside of my control, so I need to work with it and still make it manageable because it can't just be well, it's hot out so I just I'm just going to give up. Like that's not a solution either. It has to be okay. Well, what can I do today? What am I able to do and manage and how does that look and you know, having that expectation going into it of It's not what I thought it was going to look like. And that's okay. What can it look like today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And as you're saying with this heat here too, my kids and I, it's always every day we go for, uh, we go and do some sort of an activity and we're like, it is too hot. The pools weren't open yet. And that was really the only option was swimming because of how hot it was. Um, And we went for a little, little, little walk. And that was it. That's all we could manage. We're like, that's it. We're going back in, into the air conditioning. Like it was like, they had our pools open until 1145 at night here because of the heat warning here. Like Canada, it's hilarious, but um, how diverse we are in the winter and summer. But yeah, like we do managing our expectations of where it is and working within what is, what we're able to do on those days. And getting creative with
1: it, right? Yeah. Like that's a big piece is okay. So you can't go outside. Well, maybe you can stimulate your brain by creating a plan for the next nice day, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's 15 minutes of getting your creative juices going and getting your brain working and in a way that like is still inside and makes you look forward to the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or like, throwing on, doing yoga, hopping on the rowing machine, doing something around the house. Yeah. Like it's just, there's always options. We just have to really think outside the box. And sometimes it's hard to do our, on our own, but that's where having, you know, a specialist such as yourself or coming to me in order to be able to really, to help with so many different strategies outside the box that are doable, that are realistic, that are manageable, mm-hmm. that really do work within that. Amazing. All right. Anything else that you needed, you wanted to add today? I think really, uh, since we're talking a little bit more about addictions,
1: really, what I have been focusing on is destigmatizing a lot of it and educating people a little bit more on what it looks to like to be addicted and how to help support people and how to help have no judgment about it. Because at the end of the day it's just people struggling and we all struggle in different ways. And so, yes, some people use substances, which is a very easy visual of somebody not making good choices. But the reality is we all make choices that we know better. We oh. all make choices and do things that like we'd like to do differently. So instead of judging each other about it, you know, if you see somebody or yourself who's struggling and then reach out and be like, Hey, I think I need help or, Hey, like, do you know of a support system for this? Or, Hey, have you talked to somebody you look like you're struggling? Yeah. You know, and having that conversation early as well is a really, really good help. And if you have somebody to be a bit of a mirror to you, I'm fortunate because my partner is quite a mirror for my behavior and he will call me out on things when I'm not, uh, whether it's working too much or not giving myself rest or being too hard on myself. He's really good about saying, Why are you doing that? And I don't like it in the moment. I have to be honest, but whenever I sit for a minute, I'm like, okay, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. So don't be afraid to be that for somebody else.
0: Yeah. And so if you are receiving some of this information from people and it is bothering you, maybe stop and wonder why it's bothering you and reflect in that for a moment and see, is there any truth into what they are saying? And Mm -hmm my other thing as well, is just always, everybody is always doing their best. And, and that was a big learning. Um, I did used to be judgmental of everyone. until I started diving into all of this work and realizing that everybody is doing their best when they are taking something to try to fall asleep. They're trying to fall asleep when they're taking something in order to give themselves energy. They're trying to give themselves energy to order to make through the day and do the best that they can everybody is doing the best that they can, that if you are starting to cast judgment, just ask yourself, do you feel that that person is really not doing the best that they can? And when you stop and really think about it, everybody is always doing the best that they can with the tools that they have. All right, so Victoria, thank you so much for being with us today. I do in the show notes have all of your links to your show, to your website, to everything. But for those that are listening that want to hop on right now, where can they find you?
1: So if they're a social media person, they can check me out on Instagram at V I K K A H or hop on my website, www.victoriahama.com. Victoria V I K T O R I A H
0: A M M A. All right. And that is in the show notes. So just remember that there's a K in Victoria um, and Vika with an H, two Ks and an H. So, but just go to the, it's easiest, just scroll to the the show notes right now and click the links are right there and you can go right to it. So thank you, Victoria. And um, it was absolutely great having you today. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right thank you everybody for listening today and if you have any questions as we said you can go for vika's information um, down in the show notes mine as well is in the show notes so if you'd like to work with either of us find out more information about what either of us does go into the show notes and if you do go on to vika's or my social media to um her tv channel uh my youtube channel definitely go and leave comments, like subscribe. That is how more people can find us as well. So we would really, really appreciate your support and we will see you in the next episode.